Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, this week's episode is brought to you by Pizza Trocadero. For my money, the best pizza you can eat in Guelph, Ontario. A proud, independent family business run by a punk rocker, Trocadero only uses a rich array of fresh ingredients cut by hand and homemade dough made daily, all baked to perfection inside of a stone oven. It's gourmet panzerotti, calzones, wings, salads, garlic bread, breadsticks, and oh man, the pizza, the pizza, personally... I like the gourmet Domateo with goat cheese, artichoke, roasted red pepper, mushrooms. I sub out the turkey breast for eggplant, but that's just me. Wash the whole thing down with a brio? Man, I am getting hungry just talking about this. Call Pizza Trocadero at 519-829-2444. Visit them at 7 Municipal Street in Guelph and online at trocaderoguelph.ca. T-R-O-K-A-D-E-R-O. G-U-E-L-P-H dot C-A That's Pizza Trocadero A place of the good trade Creative Control with Vish On this episode, Nathan Lore joins me for a conversation about his life and his work and his music and all sorts of things. We're going to talk about um, civil liberties. That's a big that's a big topic of conversation on the show. And, you know, I've known Nathan like 16 years, 17 years or something. We're just going to get into our own history probably and his time in Guelph, Ontario. He's played in a bunch of bands. I'll tell you all about it. But, yeah, I'm very excited. Nathan Lore on the show. So here we go. Nathan Lore and I having a chat. What could be better? There's a number of things, actually, but stay where you are. The Eden Mills Writers Festival and the Bookshelf are pleased to present Alison Wearing's award-winning one-woman show, Confessions of a Fairy's Daughter, Growing Up with a Gay Dad. This is happening at the E-Bar in Guelph on Friday, May 23rd. Based on her best-selling memoir, Weering's compelling show tells the story of growing up with a gay father in the 1980s. Balancing intimacy, history, and downright hilarity, this is a captivating tale of family life, deliciously imperfect, riotously challenging, and full of life's great lessons in love. This all-ages licensed performance of Confessions of a Fairy's Daughter takes place at the E-Bar, located at 41 Quebec Street in Guelph, on Friday, May 23rd at 8 p.m. sharp. Tickets are now available at the Bookshelf Bookstore, also located at 41 Quebec Street, or online via ticketbreak.com. And for more information about the show, visit EdenMillsWritersFestival.ca. The E-Bar is not a fully accessible venue. Nathan Lohr is a talented songwriter and multi-instrumentalist who lives in Guelph. Over the past 20 years, Lohr has been a go-to drummer for people like Jim Guthrie, King Cobb Steely, Royal City, Fembots, Bry Webb, and more. When he emerged as a folk-pop songwriter in his own right about 10 years ago, Lohr's love songs had bite and topical political implications. 
which eventually morphed into his most outspoken band yet, the Afrobeat-inspired Minotaurs. Lore is also greatly invested in social change and democracy and has worked with the Canadian Civil Liberties Association to develop the Canadian Artists for Civil Liberties. He has helped organize a 50th anniversary celebration of the Canadian Civil Liberties Association on May 3rd at Trinity St. Paul's United Church in Toronto, which will feature musicians, spoken word performers, dancers, and visual artists who have all come together to celebrate freedom of expression in the arts. Here now to discuss this and many other things is my old friend, Nathan Lore. Hi, Nathan. How are you? I'm fine, Vish. How are you? It's nice to have you on the show. It's good to be here. It's been a long time coming. You were supposed to have a regular segment on this show. Yeah, Uncle Nady's Grump Shack. Uncle Nady's Grump Shack, <laughs> which was a... That evolved from... I think I had a CFRU show um, where you would come on periodically and just talk about stuff that bothered you. Yep. Yeah, it never happened. On this in this iteration, yeah, I was That's trying. That's true. To... I think we did it once or twice, and then and then uh, I don't know. I think maybe the the idea of the rant just doesn't have the cachet that I used to have. No, I also just thought I didn't. Uh, when I asked you to do it, I didn't know what my podcast version of this show would be like. Right. And I thought maybe there would be a little like variety, but then it just became like I'll just do these long form interviews. Yeah, and it also coincided with my desire to move away from the rant and tr- try have a little more positive. You didn't. You actually started to be like, I don't want to seem grumpy. That's right. Yeah, yeah. If the fact that people would uh, see me as someone who's inherently grumpy, I was not entirely comfortable with that. But you, okay. But I mean, at the same time, this hasn't softened your resolve to address the issues that a rant would bring up. That's right. Yeah, okay. So th- that that's still there. Tell us about uh, the uh, Canadian Artists for Civil Liberties and the Canadian Civil Liberties Association. Why are you involved? It's more, it's a, you know, a desire to do something beyond pontificating on social media. You know, I feel like there's a lot of activists who that's sort of the, the extent of what they try to do to make the world a better place. So I wanted to do something beyond that. And to me, working with a civil liberties organization had some nice cohesion which with what I was doing, the things that were important to me, mainly expressing myself. Um, and it just made sense to me to go further down that road. So when you say that some people seem satisfied pontificating, uh, you're saying, you're, you're, discussing, you're, you're talking about people who share links and go, oh my God. Yeah. What yeah, terrible and, thing. and that's sort of the end of, that's the end of it for them. So you know? how, how do you go beyond that? What's your, what's the extension? Well, I try to like actually organize things. Um, and, and mainly my job is at, at what I'm doing for the Civil Liberties Association is to just try and get people engaged in the idea that our civil liberties aren't something we can fall asleep on, that they need a, a daily tending to that it's not something we can take for granted. Mm-hmm. There's more than enough examples throughout the history of the world where societies, when they got a little too comfortable, um, were were abhorred to discover that that the things that, that they had sort of hung their hat on in terms of how they organized themselves as a society were no longer there, that it had been pulled out from underneath them, and, and they didn't know until it was much too late. So it's you're, 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 you're striving to attack the complacency that people have. Yeah, I wouldn't I wouldn't term it like that. I just sort of want people to just think about it more more than they they probably do. Okay, but what is the difference between raising awareness um inspiring well, people to prob- think about it? Let me finish my yeah. let me finish. <laughs> let me finish here. Okay, you finish. What is the difference between raising awareness and getting people to think about something and posting a link to a story that might do the same thing? Well, one of the differences is time takes very little time and effort to just post links. And I, I'm not saying I'm not guilty of this, too, and I'm not criticizing the people who do that. I don't want to sound like I'm saying that's that they're lesser or anything like that. It's not exactly what I mean, but I do think that we need... If, if you're really passionate about something, if you feel really strongly about something, you do need to do more than just that. But isn't that dissemination of information leading to uh, a person's... Like, wouldn't wouldn't that impact the makeup of a person on a long-term level? Like, if they're if you're constantly ingesting 
alternate information or different information, you will ultimately behave in a way, hopefully, yeah. that is reflective of that. Yeah, probably. So that's more, I think, long-term. It's still a good thing. It's not a bad thing. It's not a bad, yeah, let's say it's not a bad thing. But I also think that like social media, there's a tendency for us to paint ourselves into our little cozy little corners of like-mindedness, that we will just follow the people who we already agree with, you know, we'll, we'll share things and stuff and everything we're exposed to is stuff we already agree with. Very rarely are we actually sort of challenged. So you, do you, you immerse yourself in, in uh, opposing views? I try to. Because you want to see where those people are coming from, yeah, and that's and that's also where this the this the symbiosis of the CCLA and and the arts uh, comes into play, because the CCLA advocates for free speech up for everybody. And right, there would be this tendency to view this as some kind of polemic. It's not it, it, to me. Yeah, the the idea is that it's you're welcoming, or this organization seems to be welcoming dialogue from everyone. Yeah, like uh, a few of the lawyers who work have been on Ezra Levant's Ezra Levant's show, for example. The Sun Sun Media guy. Yeah, yeah. Um, and who, who it would be like a right? That's like the Fox News in Canada. Yeah, it's about as right as you can get in this country. Uh, also, um, what the hell was I going to say? I'm sorry. Did I cut you off? <laughs> Am I going to no, get I a No, I, I thought I would cut you off. Uh, uh, yeah. Because freedom of expression is nonpartisan. Right. That's something I'm saying again and again and again. Like, you know, this is not some lefty commie pinko project. It is for everybody. What, from your perception, why would the advocacy of free speech and liberties be colored with a left-wing brush why do we think why would conservatives immediately get their back up about an organization that calls itself uh the canadian civil liberties association well that's a good question i mean there's connotations of like freedom right in the word like, liberty yeah well well yeah but don't don't conservatives also advocate for liberty from government and, and all those well, well that's the thing i mean aren't you on the same page really <laughs> from the get-go but there's just some well nuances? i mean we, we if you want to talk into sort of political structures that's a different thing entirely hmm. um you know liberty there's liberty and and all the sort of permutations of how you want to interpret that word but then there's civil liberties which is a very technical specific thing that it's referring to uh mainly just what we're able to do in our daily lives right as as per um you know what we want to do for our jobs or what kind of movies we want to see or what music we want to listen to or what projects we want to be involved in et cetera et cetera and and how would can you cite examples of about of of how our civil liberties of as Canadians have been infringed or imposed upon World War One, World War Two, nineteen seventy. Can you make it a little more recent, a little more contemporary? Well, there's the G twenty. There you a, go. A very that's what I was obvious looking for. Example, yeah. yeah. Uh, that's the, the, the yeah. What can I say? I, I thought mean, you were going to talk about a horse and buggy there at one point. <laughs> well, World we War One. I, I mean, probably, that, I'm what I'm saying is how are you going to? Because I I agree with you that people don't seem to be mindful that this kind of stuff is happening but how do you make it and you mentioned social media and everything has seemed so fleeting these days like how do you galvanize people behind something like this and make it seem not only contemporary but immediate to them and i think you're probably struggling with that as an organizer of, of these kinds of events definitely yeah i mean that's that's the big that's the big question mark really hmm. and what what we're trying to do with this that's that's the ultimate goal and how you go about doing that i'm not exactly sure talking about politics talking about these issues tends to be something that you do you know not at a family dinner right well it depends on your family i guess but you know there's a sort of like hushed there's a pressure to not be outspoken there's a pressure to not sort of like get it. Oh, they're going to get into that. I don't want to get into that. Now from whom? Who was that pressure from? Well, you know, if you ask me, I would say that it's it's coming from it's a it's a societal thing. It's sort of ingrained into us. Some people would argue that it's purposely. You know, the Noam Chomsky's of the world would argue that that it's it's a intentional thing from the elites in power who stand to gain from us not talking about these things, who stand to gain from us not thinking deeply about these things and going, 
connecting the dots, you know, and yeah. saying, wait a sec, this doesn't, this doesn't, these policies actually don't benefit me at all. Who do they benefit? Asking that question is, is something that uh, not many people do in their daily lives. And I assume that the reasoning for most of those people would be like, hey, I got a kid, I got a job, I got stuff to do, you know, I seem to, I pay my taxes, I do my thing, you know, that's the extent to which I'm willing to contribute to society. Yeah, and I'm not going to say that that's not a valid view. I mean, it's, it's you know, it's a reality. You have two kids, a full-time job, and a house to clean. I mean, there's not much time left yeah. for, for thinking about civil liberties. I mean, it's, that's just the way it is. But I also think that there is a sort of culture of not engaging with these things very deeply. And it's not it's not hard to see evidence of that. Yeah, and I think what you're, and I don't know if this is a term, but I'm going to go ahead and potentially coin it. I think what you're touching upon and are frustrated by is a kind of false activism. Yeah, I don't know if I would go that far. Like, well, it, we, like we said before, it's not, you know, d- doing things sort of in a, in a cursive way isn't necessarily bad. It's just not enough. Right. So I wouldn't call it's it false. Not, it's not false. It's just, in, it's, uh, it lacks efficacy. It's not, it's not the most... I mean, you know, uh, Chris Hedges talks very blatantly about the only way, and he's not the only one to say this. I mean, revolutionaries throughout the history of the world have said the same thing. The only way real change is going to come is from people getting out into the streets. Right. That's the only way. Change will not come from within the system because systems aren't designed for that. They're designed to function as is. I mean, that's why... The, the, I've been reading a lot about this new uh, capitalism in the 21st century book. You know, the, 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 the inequality that, that is resulting from neoliberal economics and capital is not some anomaly or a mistake of the system. That is exactly what the system is designed to do. Right. So to, to, to change that you have to work outside of the system because working within the system, you're just going to get funneled into the system and nothing's going to change. Right. I mean, we've seen it happen time and again where governments or, or there was an incident recently where the National Basketball Association had to deal with an owner, yeah. Donald Sterling, who had said some questionable things. And there was an uproar, a public outcry. And I feel like part of the, they ended up making the decision to ban the owner for life, yeah. forcing him to sell his team. He's a billionaire, yeah, multi-billionaire, I think. Forcing him to sell his team, they find him two point five million dollars, which apparently is just like nothing to this guy. Yeah. But they made this—that's the harshest fine they could uh, enforce. Mm-hmm. And I feel like part of what they were doing was not only—well, I think they were saving face. I mean, they obviously were, they, what he said was, they viewed it as heinous. But I, I see this all the time, where there is a public outcry, as you described. Like, people, not people weren't in the streets, but there was so much discussion about it. Mm-hmm. And there's so much discussion about certain government initiatives that I feel like the change comes out of shame. <laughs> as much as fear of revolution now, it's more a fear of, how is this going to make us look? Well, that's exactly it. In this, in the case of the Donald Sterling thing, I mean, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar said basically that, you know, just kicking this guy out, that's great. Obviously, that's yeah. the obvious thing to do. But it doesn't change anything, really. Mm-hmm. All it's going to do is tell the racists to keep their opinions to themselves or right. not, not, not let the racism get recorded. Right. Um, is, and, you know, I can't remember the term that he used or the way he put it, but basically like, you know, there's the, something about Olympic... Uh, it was amazing. Basically that like everyone's like getting on this guy and like saying how crappy this guy is and that somehow absolves them from their own participation right. in, in institutional racism and everything else, you know, the, the sort of ingrained stuff that we can just sort of gloss over because we pointed this guy out as being an obvious racist. Right. Uh, yeah. I can't remember how we got on that. Well, no, I just, I, I just think it's, it's curious how change should, I guess I'm right and so I, my I, I'm sorry to interrupt you but in, <laughs> and my issue with the social media stuff is that so often and I am guilty of this too of getting on there and saying this sucks and this is brutal and then you know going down to the store and getting a chocolate bar which is produced by a giant corporation which relies on uh, right. basically slave labor to produce and then going down to H&M getting a new pair of socks which is made in Bangladesh you know I am really I am I'm part sure. of the system whether I like it or not yeah and you know, how do I sort of 
how do I deal with that? Part of it is that we're dependent on this structure. It's really difficult to live totally outside of it, mm-hmm. unless you want to socially sort of take yourself outside of it too. And that's the problem. We're, we're part of it. If we don't like it, how do we either have to like work to change it or accept our role in it? Right. I think. You buy socks at H and M. I have yes. That's, I've I can't believe that. <laughs> I know it undermines everything. And this is the other thing: as soon as you show like a bit of like uh, <clears throat> contradiction, all of a sudden, all your points that you've made this are is irrelevant. A, a huge point. This has happened to Nader. This Ralph Nader. Yeah, this happens yeah, yeah. to Chomsky. This yeah. happens to anyone who I think is. Basically, there is a, any any righteousness is often counteracted with accusations of hypocrisy. Absolutely, look at the Neil Young thing. Like, right? Oh, Neil Young's—he's been on tour a million times and tour buses. Like, how can he say not to use oil? It's like all—how does that completely negate everything he's trying to say here? Yeah. But for a lot of people, that's that that's that's what it does. Right. As soon as you show a hint of contradiction, you're 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 made completely irrelevant. Right. And it's it's it it really just muddies the message that could actually affect real change. Yeah, yeah it's frust. I understand your frustration, and I understand why you're involved. I wanna I wanna switch gears rather radically, because you're a musician. Yes. And I wanna ask you about your musical background because you are well regarded as a musician. I wanna circle. We're gonna circle back around to how I think your music informs the stuff we've just been talking yeah, about. Yeah. But I wanna ask you about. Uh, how you started playing music and, and you know, what, what inspired you uh, to uh, play as a, you know, as a player, but also uh, as a listener uh, from your earliest memories, you know, what, what was it about music that, that grabbed you? The Peter Gunn theme. The Peter Gunn theme? Yeah. Can you give us a little bit of it? Dun, 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 dun. Right. That's it. You know the one? I totally know the theme. Grade seven, school band. I got to play... And I didn't get to play drums on it. I I was part of the percussion section. I think I played tambourine. But the drummer, that's just like, I think that some sort of famous composer who wrote that. Yeah, yeah. It's, uh, uh, what's here, his I'll, name? I'll look it up. Anyway, the drum beat's like the awesomest, you know, when you're 12 years old or 13 years old, it's the awesomest drum beat. It's the quintessential sort of like, you know, when someone who can't play the drum sits at the drums, they play that beat. How does the beat go? Okay. A really nice sort of quarter note, like swingy thing. Um, yeah, when I heard that and saw it, you know, I was sitting right next to the drummer in grade seven when he was playing that. And I was. Like, I got Henry Mancini. Henry here. Mancini, that's the one, and I just thought, wow, I gotta, I gotta get behind there. I gotta get behind <laughs> there and do that. Did you ever play uh, on the Commodore sixty four? Did you have one of those? I did. Yeah. Do you play video games? I uh, uh, Winter Games, I think, is what I played. You didn't play Spy Hunter. No, they use it. the Peter Gunn theme. Oh, okay. So a part of my brain, I right. think, is like Spy Hunter, gotcha. Peter Gunn theme. Of course, Peter Gunn, I believe that the theme, so it was, the show was created around the same time as James Bond, because it has like a James Bond. Yeah, but it was a TV show. Right. Anyway, sorry. So Peter So Yeah, so when I, that was what kicked it off, and then I just wanted to play the drums really bad after that, and I would, you know, sign out the drum kit over the summers. And you could do that? Yeah. They let, where'd you, where'd I, you go to school? In Alora. Okay. It was a small school. Um, and it was also, you know, a while ago. It was before 9-11, Vish. Things were a lot different. <laughs> you could get a lot, wave a lot more before that. I didn't know it would take this long for you to evoke 9-11. <laughs> I knew it was going to happen. I thought it would be sooner. Uh, um, yeah. And then that was just sort of it. And I was just hooked and I want to just keep playing drums. So you would play over the summers and, and, and then when you got back to school? Yeah, and then my dad took me to buy my first drum kit for 50 bucks, which was like covered in shelf paper. <laughs> it was such a heinous contraption, but uh, it was it was great. And so then, like a used kit somewhere? Yeah, just some piece of crap yeah. from a garage. Um, it had birds living in it or something. I don't <laughs> I remember. Uh, but yeah, that was sort of it. And, and just as I got older, I just wanted to put more time into that and... So who so the Peter Gunn theme was an early influence on you externally? What were were there other are, are drummers? Were there other? Uh, did you have teachers who who? Uh, uh, and I went to a smattering of private teachers with various results. You know, they didn't really. I don't know. I wasn't really a stick to it kind of kid. I just wanted to like 
get a little bit from here and get a little bit from there. My favorite, my favorite teacher though, would I would go down into he lived with his mom and we would go down to his basement. It was just like moldy and wet and stuff, and uh, he would sit me down at the drums and then put on a uh, a Jimi Hendrix record that was set up sort of behind me. So the speakers were coming into my back and he just crank it. So it was like blastingly loud. And he would sit off to my left, nodding to the beat. And I would just have to play along. You would play along with Jimi Hendrix. Yeah. And that was my lesson. The drummer, Mitch, Mitch, Mitch Mitchell, Mitch Mitchell. Mitchell, You would play to Mitch Mitchell. Yeah. Among other things, I think a couple rush records and various things. And I was just sort of struggle to keep up. But, um, one of the things that came from that was just like, you know, I felt like I was in the band. It was so loud and I was part of it. And, and I think that was, you know, for a while I was like, oh, that's no way to teach. And just like, what is he doing? He's just sitting there nodding. <laughs> <laughs> but I was like, you know, it, it wasn't until later that I sort of realized the genius of that as the lesson. Oh, you actually appreciated it? Yeah. And how old were you when you were uh, in this like, basement, yeah, like dude? 13 or 14. Okay. Or yeah. And... How so? You weren't a stick to it kind of guy, but you like playing drums. I mean, I kept playing drums. I just wasn't like the kind of guy who was going to sit down for four hours a day and work out my paradiddles. Okay, I just wanted to play along to the music, basically. And who else were you playing along with? Oh boy, some things that are kind of embarrassing that I won't tell you. But no, I want to know. know. No, I think it actually is insightful. Uh, well, you know, I guess when I really started to like go for it, it was Fugazi and Primus and. That kind of stuff. Sure. Metallica, Megadeth. Yeah, all kinds of stuff. Rock stuff. Yeah, like heavy metal, like, yeah, rock stuff. Fugazi, I mean, the, of the examples you cited, maybe Primus is in this realm, uh, but Brendan Canty of Fugazi and um, uh, what the... Tim something, yeah. Tim Alexander. A, but he had a different name. I can't remember his nickname. There was Lur. From Primus. There's Les Claypool and then Larry yeah. Lalonde. Yeah, no, yeah, is that yeah, his yeah. name? Yeah, yeah. And then Tim, but he had like a different name. Yeah, I can't remember what it Should was. Should I look it up? No, I'm not <laughs> going to look that up too. I think it was Peter Gunn. Anyway, so they would incorporate, They were uh, of the people you mentioned, they seem to be the most dynamic, like hordes of other influences in their playing. Yeah, yeah. Um, because I view you as some something of, uh, you know, there's lots of, I can hear lots of different influences in the way you play. Right. So, okay, so you're playing like those guys a little bit. What was your first band? Did you have a band? Yeah, my first band uh, was, uh, geez, my first, first band, I think it was called Mercurial. My first real band where I was like, we rehearsed all the time, played a couple shows, it was called Mercurial. Original? So, yeah, we were sort of a progressive rock, kind of like alternate, right right at the height of alternative rock, you know, that we were sort of- 92, 93? Yeah, that's about right. And in Guelph? Yep. Okay. But at some point, you, you you went to high school in Alora? I went to high school in Fergus. Fergus. Yeah. So, and through that, the, during those times, I would come to Guelph and see punk rock shows at like UC 103 and right. The Loft and uh, various other... Okay. Yeah. So, uh, through all this, you were just playing more or less self, self-taught. self yep. Playing along the records in my basement and driving my parents up the wall. <laughs> <laughs> okay, and uh, and then you are a multi-instrumentalist. You picked up other instruments. When did that start? Probably not till the Royal City-ish days. So, so like, like late nineties, just pre yeah, like after ninety seven. You would sort of ninety seven ish, I guess ninety seven, ninety eight. Start playing and, uh, guitar, like just farting around. Yeah. I'm not a guitar player by any stretch. The piano is okay because it's more linear and I can hit it. <laughs> the, the guitar takes a little more conceptual like yeah yeah leaps and it's also a little more dainty i started taking piano lessons so i could finally understand guitar it helped vaguely yeah uh, the guitar is just an enigma to me it doesn't actually make any sense no it makes no sense you just have to play it yeah i took a lesson it. from uh eric chanot one time and he tried to lay it all out for me and i was just no <laughs> you know what i'm just gonna call this one not for me okay you just gave up are you a bit of a quitter uh well, I wouldn't say that. I would say, like, I'm really, really strict about the, t- the things I spend my time on, you know. Okay. I'm not going to, like, tr- if if the guitar is not for me, I'm not going to invest my time in it. I'm going to spend it on something else that is for me. You figured it out. Yeah. I think we're all like that a little bit. I think it's. I think you need to be ruthless about your time sometimes, especially right. when you become a parent, obviously. Right. Okay, so from... What we learned, and then so yeah, you ended up being in Royal City. Was that your? Well, no, you started playing with Jim. 
And King Cobb Steely. Like, those was, were... King Cobb Steely was a big one. Yeah. That's when that sort of brought me out of the, this, the, the mercurial type trajectory. Um, would I know anyone in this mercurial band? Uh, I really doubt it. Uh, this guy, Darren, who now manages Guelph Music. Oh. We, we were in it together. Um, a couple other guys. I don't know if you'd know them. Okay. Um, is there recordings? We made a cassette. I don't know where it is. I don't know if I have one. I, and I, we might be here at CFRU. It, there's a very good chance. Okay. I do have a couple of rejection letters, though, that we sent to major labels. One from Warner and another one from, uh, I can't remember, Sony or something like they that. They actually wrote back to you? Yep. And yep. were they kind or were they just like... No, they're totally kind. Oh, okay. I, I mean, that's why I kept them. <laughs> I was like, wow. No, I just was looking at them the other day and I thought, wow, like a rejection letter from a record label. Like how how more 1990s can you get? Than right. That? So King Cobb Steely, uh, we're a great band from Guelph. You started playing drums with them. Mm-hmm. Uh, subsequent to that, or sorry, subsequent to King Cobb Steely, Jim Guthrie. Yeah, like King Cobb sort of introduced me to a whole another level of peers, I guess, you know, other musicians who are doing more interesting things. And I was like, oh, like it sort of introduced me to this whole other world. Not only the music that I was introduced by playing in that band, you know, like Kevin Byrne when I first joined was like, you got to listen to this tape of dub reggae. And there's, you know, two 90-minute cassettes of just dub reggae. So I just listen to that stuff. And- King Cobb were this, and I don't mean to reduce them because it doesn't quite do them justice, but they were like this meeting point between punk and progressive music or is that the yeah, right Yeah, I guess when that first record came out, it was sort of a, like a a moment, you know, yeah. where they took, you know, I don't know if they were one of the first ones to sort of use scratching in in sort of a punk aesthetic. Yeah. But they certainly did that. This idea of of, of stepping outside your genre without compromising yeah, your yeah, yeah. vision. Of pulling in other styles of music that may share... A, an, an approach, maybe not, you know, like you could say, you could say that punk rock and hip hop, maybe in the early days shared, not an aesthetic, but an approach, right? Like, a, let's just do it. Mm-hmm. Let's just sort of work with what we have and see what comes out of that. <clears throat> and in a sense, that openness and that acceptance of other things had a kind of political implication. It, it seemed to me like a political gesture For to, sure, to, yeah. to, to sort of, you know, we were kind of the the term globalization or whatever was just kind of coming into vogue, but mm-hmm. this idea of of yeah, the world is a big place and and we're all or the world is a big place, but it's also a very small place, right? And I feel like they kind of were one of the first bands to capture that feeling for sure of like we're all the same. Yeah, <laughs> like yeah. the, the the farther you go, the more you're like someone you like you meet, uh, kind of thing. Yeah, and also we don't need to rely on the the mainstream culture to. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Give our lives meaning. We can create our own meaning in our own sort of communities. Right. You know, now you, you subsequently went on with Jim Guthrie, yep. who is yep. among the most apolitical people I know. <laughs> and then Without a doubt, yeah. also with uh, Royal City, yep. Aaron Riches, uh, the other end of the spectrum, when he was really going in Guelph. Mm-hmm. In the punk community, he was among the most politically active and it's in, probably, in, in a lot of ways still is yep. um, people. So I'm curious about this city because when I came to Guelph in the mid-90s, I came knowing that it had a reputation as being an activist city. Right. Um, and it was true. Like nothing – it was a university town, which I didn't live in. I'm from Cambridge. Um, but it, it, you did get the sense that people were were willing to discuss things, willing to fight for things. Um, 
And I'm curious how that environment shaped you because you were at the heart of it. And a lot of, it's interesting how much political action stems from, hey, we're going to have a rally. We need a band. You know, we need a we need a musician. It's always interesting to me how those two worlds are connected and you were fully immersed in it at I think a very formative time in the city. A time I don't think really exists anymore. No. Um can but you t- but, the, but the past never really exists anymore. Well, that's <laughs> No, <laughs> but know. I mean a, a city can have a feeling or a sentiment. I don't yeah, know yeah. that I would if someone were coming into town. In fact, someone I was just on a airport shuttle with someone and like tell me about Guelph and I never once said you know, we're a fairly politically uh, active town because it right. doesn't feel like we are. But I much. wouldn't have said that about Guelph back then either. I mean, but I, but I, it's only, in, but you did. I did and I would. Right, I mean, right, there right. were marches, you were at school, there were protests, people were, you know, when there were, and then it's happening again. People are protesting tuition hikes and things like that. But yeah. yeah, like I couldn't, I'd swear once a month someone was locking themselves into something. There was some kind of right, right, demonstration. Right. I don't hear of that as much anymore. And I, anyway, I'm just curious. I think you're uh, a good case study as to how those worlds kind of came together to shape your being. Yeah, I have no idea, honestly. Like, I, it, how I sort of came to where I, how I came to feel the way I feel, it might have something to do with how I grew up. I mean, I never, you know, what you're talking about is sort of like seeing things from the outside and things, seeing things in hindsight, and it's really easy to analyze things coming from an outside perspective from that sort of context. But when you're in it, you don't really necessarily see it for what it is. That's just a general rule. You, you say you, you played drums and kind of drew your parents up the wall a little bit, which is, you know, kind of a, a cute thing to say. <laughs> we all, we all kind of did that on some level, Yeah, yeah. but were they supportive of your music? Were they, were they themselves? Yeah, for sure. Yeah, yeah. And philosophically, were you on the same page? They, I don't know. I mean, I don't think so. They didn't ever. They never thought it. Thought of it as deeply as I was thinking of it, which would frustrate me at times. But that's just. That's it's my thing. It's not their thing. So they don't need to think about it as deeply as that. Um, yeah, what, what it's would, not a cute thing. I don't think it's a cute thing at all. It's not cute. There's nothing cute about listening to a 14 year old like with a double kick pedal in your basement for four hours on the weekend. It's slightly endearing. It's the kind of thing that would come up uh, at a wedding speech that a father <laughs> or mother might give. Yes, of course, young Nady was playing the drums. I'm sorry, that's your grandparent making the speech. But Either you way, know, you know what I mean. It yeah, is. Yeah, yeah. It is. It is kind of. Uh, do you understand what I'm saying? I do, yeah, yeah. So my point is that I, I'm just curious if they were, how supportive they were of you and your Supportive, very world supportive. View. They seem like nice people, your parents. Yeah, they're very supportive. <laughs> they, 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 you know, I'm sort of like, oh, there goes Nathan again, going off on his tangent, you know. Good for you for thinking about stuff, but can you stop it now? They used to seem to enjoy it when you would say something um, sort of pointed or political on Facebook and I would come in and just undercut it. <laughs> I noticed that the people who liked my comment were always like lores. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I don't know that why. I was just, sense. I was having fun because I, as you know, I probably, we, you and I probably share almost the exact same belief system. Yeah, yeah. But. Including uh, the belief in arguing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Do you, have we been arguing? No, we're not arguing not now. Not right now, no. Oh, yeah. But I think we both take a certain amount of pleasure from it. Yeah, I mean, I like having discussions and argue, I guess arguing, maybe. Either way. If I have a point of view, sure. Yeah. But I don't know if that... And um, Do you... <laughs> this is going to be ridiculous. Do you consider yourself a punk rock person? Uh, No. How so? Why not? I don't... I, I guess I just wouldn't want to take away from anyone who's, who <laughs> <laughs> does actually feel punk rock. I mean, I don't, I don't know. I, to come out and say, like, yeah, I'm like punk rock... Uh, in my experience, almost immediately <laughs> nullifies that your your own description of yourself. I was, oh, I see what you're saying. Yeah, like if you know, if I were to ask you if you thought of yourself as left wing, you might have the same. Yeah, answer. like if you need to come out and tell me that you're punk rock, I'm gonna guess that maybe you're not. No, 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 that's fine. Okay, I put you in a corner, and I'm. I guess I'm wondering because we were talking earlier. I came up with the the term false activism, which you kind of were like, eh, I don't think that's a an appropriate term. Um, but I do think that a lot of the, a lot of discussions about authority mm-hmm. seem to stem from people who might align themselves with ideals of punk. Yeah. 
Right. And and that's all I'm getting at. Right, right, right. It, the problem for me is that, and to answer your question, is that no. And part of the reason is because the idea of punk rock has a has a whole host of connotations. Um, and I think that sometimes it's beneficial to not... I guess the message for like you know, free expression and stuff like that, that can apply to people who listen to classical music. It can apply to people who go to the theater or to an opera or whatever. It doesn't, if I were to say, oh, I'm punk rock, that immediately brings with it all these other connotations. Right. That I'm anti-establishment, I'm anti this, I wear it dressed a certain way. Listen to one kind of music. Um, yeah, so I, I tend to not want to go there just because I want to anything I'm working on I want it to appeal to a broader range of people I guess we you mentioned a few sort of generic signifiers there and a lot of them galvanize people a lot of a lot of generic signifiers they do try to bring they tend to bring people together yeah of course and, and I feel like that's the same work you're trying to do with your organization is try to bridge gaps and and find common ground yep um but and you're using music to do that. Trying to. But you're using. I noticed, like, I the event that you've got coming up, and I will just pull it up here because I want to get this right. Here are the people participating: Jason Collette, Array Music Ensemble, playing an original piece by Oscar-nominated musician Owen Pallet, which is true. <laughs> Kobo Town. Um, I don't know how to pronounce this. Axe. Uh, Axe Capoeira. Capoeira. I don't, I'm not familiar with Axe. It's uh, it's not a band. It's a group that does capoeira as a type of dance. Oh, okay. It's a Brazilian style of dance that came out of the colonial times. Um, the the s- slaves in Brazil were not allowed to dance. Right. So they developed a form of dance that looked like fighting. Oh, okay. Because they were allowed to fight, but they weren't allowed to dance. Oh, interesting. So it's this sort of style of dance that's this sort of mock fighting kind of thing. Like West Side Story? Sure. <laughs> yes. Sorry. That was a terrible thing to say. Clay and Paper Theater, Lido Pimenta, Damian Rogers, and something to be announced, University of Toronto Acapella. Oh, well, that, it's, no, it's. <laughs> what does this mean? I'm looking at the Facebook. Yeah, the TBA stands for Tunes Beats Awesome. Oh. Yeah. University of Toronto Acapella a, Choir. Yeah. That's a horrible acronym yes. for them to have chosen, if I might say. It's very misleading. You can say that. So my point is you've actually, for your event and for the events that I've seen you do otherwise, you're actually trying to bring in disparate yes. uh, artists. Yeah. What's the point of that? Like, I, I mean, why bring in a variety? I mean, it's, we all do it. We put on a variety show. But in terms of trying to get the message out, is that the, is that the most effective method? I don't know. No clue. <laughs> but, but I know that, or what I feel, that bringing... So the, the the project has t- uh, two goals. One is to sort of bring the idea of civil liberties to a, b- a broader range of people, but also to remind artists that what they do inherently relies on their ability to express what they feel they need to. So to achieve that goal, we bring we try to bring people from multiple disciplines together so that they can each see what the other is doing and then ho- hopefully be inspired by that or be influenced by that. Um, to just sort of like spread the love around, mm-hmm. to sort of build this idea that we are all artists. We don't need to be sequestered from one another. We don't, you know, we, we're essentially doing the exact same thing. We're just doing it in a different way. Yeah, I only raise it because uh, I think it's, we were talking earlier about, uh, you know, people go to the opera and people go to the theater and whatever. And what you have usually is hundreds of people who have a common interest. Mm-hmm. And, all of them could go out. Like you hear the off, you go to a show or something and you hear people in the lobby who've never spoken to one another before in their life being like, that was really interesting about that part of the show. And they can have a conversation because they've all experienced the same thing. And I guess I was only raising it because your approach with this event and the other events I've seen is to bring people together who might not have common ground mm-hmm. and kind of leave them <laughs> kind of by themselves. Like your hope is that they would they would find a meeting space, but it's going to be a lot harder. And it might be a lot harder to create. Now I'm like, I'm talking like I'm critiquing your programming, which <laughs> well, is no, you raise, you know, it's a good point. But at the same time, it's like, 
Yeah, you might be right. And maybe it's going to be harder to reach people this way. I don't know. Um, but I but I think it's it's a worthwhile goal. I no, mean, no, it's, I think it's, it's going to be an awesome show. I, you know, it's no matter what. I'm thinking incrementally. Like I was just like, if you put on, say, Feist or someone does a show, and she talks about these issues. Mm-hmm. That might have a lot of resonance with like hundreds of yeah, Feist fans, and then it they'd would. go out into the world, and maybe they'd see this event and be like, "I, she was talking about that." I mean, you got to convince people to put themselves on the line. But this is that that ex- is exactly yeah. the thing, okay. Okay. right? Yeah. And and I've approached people who who, who whose names are well. I don't known. know why I picked Feist, by the way. Well, no, it's a good example. Um, you know, she's someone who's you know there are people who all they have to do is fart on a sandwich and Whoa. That, that carries weight and people are going to talk about it. Whoa. I just I just want you to we're on the radio. Farting on a sandwich, it's also for some people lunchtime. Why are you talking about farting on sandwiches? But you know what I mean? I mean, I mean there are people who just like roll over at night and there's stories about that in the media. Right. Okay, right? that's a okay. better example. Yeah. Fine. Uh <clears throat> farting on a sandwich. Well, now you've said it more times than I have. I know. But you get my point. You're saying- and, and so part of the strategy with this sort of show is to sort of tell our other artists that, look, we're doing interesting things. We're, you know, I don't know, to try and build up some respectability, some sort of credibility mm-hmm. so that people who um, have a larger name or are more well-known would be more willing to put their name on the line. I had talked to a friend of mine who's, who's actually good friends with a, a famous Hollywood starlet. And he told me that he's bugged her she's an environmentalist and he's bugged her about adding her name to things sarah Polly? no uh and he said that p- part of her dilemma is that as soon as she puts her name to something she then has to answer questions about that she then has to sort of uh defend whatever thing right. is so she has to be really choosy about what she lends her name to and i get that mm-hmm. um obviously yeah, that's just sort of a. That's a political thing. It's yeah, or like a. But bus- that's business that, thing. that's part of the problem too. Is that why is it so hard for famous people to speak out on these issues? Why is there seemingly a, a total lack of political discussion amongst famous artists? You know, there's you have a few. You know, people like Sarah Harmer are, are outspoken and mm-hmm. are known for being so. But there's hardly any. You know why. Why is that? Because I think it's just as you outlined. I think some people are afraid of how and are being told by people whose bottom line. Like basically when an artist who's aligned with something, uh, an agency or management will have a harder time. Yeah. And that's exactly what I'm talking about when we started the conversation that there's this hush on sort of political conversation. Right. Um, And then you have to ask the question, why is there this hush? Who benefits from the hush? Well, it's not us. It's not like the average person, the average working person or the average citizen, however you, however you want to describe it, taxpayer, mm-hmm. whatever. Mm-hmm. We do not benefit from that lack of debate, that from that lack of conversation. The people who benefit are the corporations, the banks, the people currently in power. Those are the people who benefit from us not talking about it and from us not really doing anything about it. Right. You had an interesting and unfortunate incident occur. Uh, must have been a year ago. Yeah. Where you tried to, on behalf of the CCLA, organize a hockey game. Yes. And it was a hockey game between artists and the Toronto police. Yes. And you were on Facebook talking about it, and it just blew up in your face. Can you talk about that situation? Well, it was a really interesting one, really a really traumatic one for me. Um, You know, I guess... I will now admit to coming to the whole thing pretty naively. You can't, and you, by the way, like you came to me as one of the people to try to help you. Yeah, yeah and, and you I, said no. I said right away, like, <laughs> I see this as nothing but trouble. Yeah, yeah, I just yeah. want I'm not taking credit for it, but I feel like you were like, what's wrong with you? Like, you were kind of upset yeah, with me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I'm not going to, you know. We haven't told the story yet. Yeah, Maybe yeah. tell the story and okay, then we'll. Okay, so this hockey game, you know, the idea was to. You know, try and elevate the conversation of police, you know, police in the community to something beyond F the pigs and sturdy, dirty hippies, which to me, you know, often. That was the polemic you saw. You saw that that's what it That's what you thought. That's sort of my very blunt interpretation. Now, I'm not saying that, you know, part of the, the goal was to admit that, yeah, like there are some serious issues 
with how the police conduct themselves in our communities, mm -hmm. without a doubt. And the CCLA is well known for dealing with that. Um, and on the flip side, there there are a lot of police officers who, who really approach the job with nothing but the best intentions, and we can't we can't discard that. So our idea was, well, how can we sort of like try and add another dynamic to this discourse? That was it. That's what we hope to achieve. Yeah, the criticism was mind blowing. <laughs> uh, not because they didn't have not because the critics didn't have really valid points. Many of them were extremely valid. The thing that was so traumatic was the, the trolling aspect of it, the, the personal attacks, the, the swearing and the name calling. Oh man. I just, I just like a week ago, I checked my Facebook messages and the other, they have the other, the first one in the other, you know, uh, your, your messages, you can go to your, I didn't know there was and, another, Oh, huh. this is, this is a whole other thing. Anyway, the first one was from this random guy saying, you are scum to me about, and it's just because you organized this event. Yeah. Yeah. People sort of interpreted. And ultimately I actually, if you want to know the truth, I think they were right that the only people who really benefited from the hockey game were the police themselves. Um, sort of af after the game was all over and the dust had settled, I had to sort of take stock and, and sort of evaluate what we accomplished. I'm not sure we really accomplished anything except for getting a lot of people mad and, and giving the, the cops a little bit of positive PR. I don't know if we really, which is what people were afraid of. Yeah. Uh, people who were against the event. Yeah. And, and, you know, I will, I will sit here and admit that they were right. What I will not admit that is that our efforts were a waste of time. Okay. Because sometimes, you know, maybe you got to make a few mistakes to, to, you know, I really don't think anyone was harmed by it as other people were also suggesting that victims of police violence was somehow, you know, was it because or, it was it also because it was hockey? That's another big part of it. Like you know, the, it's one of the most a, violent games. No, it wasn't that it was, oh. it was just a white upper class thing to do. Oh, I see. I you see. Know, you know, uh, poor people of, of minorities don't necessarily tend toward playing hockey. So I get that also. Um, but maybe you should have chosen something else. Probably. Hmm. At the same time, like, you know, we we're just trying something and I really don't think that anyone was like, like harmed by it. You yeah. Know? Perhaps we didn't except you, except me. <laughs> Really? And maybe, maybe for, in some people's eyes, the reputation of the CCLA. You quit Facebook. I did. You couldn't handle it? Nope. That's too much for me. But then you... I realized, and for me, Facebook just became this like source of profound negativity. Yeah, yeah, no, I can see that. And it just... I felt bad for you. I felt honestly bad for you. But I mean, when you approached some of the people you approached, including myself and some of the bands, I was like, no one's going to touch this. Yeah. And, and that's, they're right. Yeah. But some people did touch it. Yeah. So, and when were they impacted the way you were? And no. 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 But that is an example of people putting themselves, and you yourself, putting yourself on the line and people not accepting it. Yeah. I mean, imagine, I don't know, you like Bruce Springsteen. Remember when Bruce Springsteen? Sort of, yeah. Kind of. <laughs> you know, when he, uh, yeah, I don't want to talk about him necessarily, but there are people like him who finally would just be like, I am for, this is what I stand for. Mm -hmm. You know, I know that some of you, and he didn't say this, but like there's this feeling like among some people that he was like blue collar, blah, blah, blah. And like, and, and, but not really getting how that would impact them on a political level. Right. But he kind of aligned himself with a certain party and then, yeah, it's complicated, right? It is complicated, no doubt. Yeah. But that shouldn't mean we shy away from prodding the thing. Yeah. You know? Obviously, you know, if nothing else came of that, it was proof because the the guy I was organizing the game with on the, the police side, he saw all that Facebook stuff. Right. You know, he even said to me like, wow, we ruffled a few feathers with this game, eh? And, you know, it was interesting having conversations with him because he could say things like, you know, he's, he do, he's not an idiot. Those mm -hmm. guys aren't idiots. They yeah. know how they're perceived in the public. Yeah. They do take it to heart. He, he told me that morale was extremely low in the Toronto police in general, mainly because of what happened in the, G, the G20. Right. You know, those, you know, and I feel like the only way we're really going to solve these issues is not just to say like 
if you if you even like suggest that you might support a police officer, you're obviously a fascist. Well, that's ridiculous. So to even say that, just it, it's a waste of breath. Right. You know, if we're right. gonna actually solve this problem, we need to find a way. And it's just like any other conflict in the world. The only way you're gonna solve them or reach any kind of resolution is to sit at the table and look each other in the eye and come with mutual respect right and try and work it out it seems like a valid thing but it's it's, it's just, really hard to do it's very hard to do <laughs> i want to i want to because we're, we're coming towards the end of this conversation let's go in a more positive <laughs> route and, yes, and bring please. it back to music uh what has been the most fulfilling and enjoyable and maybe thrilling time that you've ever had in a band uh yeah i would say the royal city Real City. Yeah, those that, those first few tours. Which you know? I, I got to go on a couple of those. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's where you and I really met. Yeah. We bonded on a, a those were Those were heady times. Now, why did those come to mind right away? Because you've, you've worked with a lot of people. Well, because it was like the first thing mm. that, you know, it was like the first, first time I'd ever gone on a really big sort of like do-it-yourself tour. It's funny because you're talking about the American tour we did. Yeah. In like October of 2000. But I remember that you almost didn't do that. Um, part of the reason I think I was even there was because you might not have. Uh, well, we both played drums. And I mean, Aaron and Jim wanted me there. But you were you were getting, you were dispatching these messages from, you were on tour with Feist. Yeah. Across Canada. And yeah, it was a was... money losing proposition. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and you yeah. were like just sending these messages being like, I can't go. I'm broke. I'm annoyed. Like you were just angry. <laughs> Well, that was a four-week tour, and most shows were to, like, four or five people. Right. Um, you know, it's amazing. And now look at her. Uh, but Second Feist reference of this episode. Yeah. I didn't expect that. Um, but anyway, you – so, yeah, that tour and, – and, and what struck me is that you made – and you made great records with Royal City. Yeah. And then you left. Let's not get into that. <laughs> <laughs> is that is that a sore point for you? Yes. You wish you hadn't left. Yes. But but everything happens for a reason. You're right. <laughs> it's really that bad. I didn't know. I didn't realize it, it impacted you so badly. Oh well, that's it's it's well in the past. I like Here that. We, I was I like, let's go out on a bright note. <laughs> and all I've talked about is things that have destroyed you. Emotionally. Well, let me let me let me articulate why that tour was so great because here we are you know when you're when you're in a band that you're really into yeah you know it's you're you're just the the sort of camaraderie is is amazing yeah this is really no way to feel that anywhere else unless you're on a, a team or something like that um and then here we are like going through the united states and and we didn't just like play shows we went to the rock and roll hall of fame and we went to find oh yeah that was fun big pink and yeah. we did all these sort stayed of with ryan adams that was crazy. Met Sufjan Stevens. That's right. Stayed with Sufjan, yeah. So all these sort of other things that, that were sort of, you know, uh, they were showing us that we were part of this sort yeah, of yeah. mystical thing that was American music and, and yeah. the stuff that we'd all been so deeply influenced by. It was here we were participating <laughs> in it. We weren't just like reading about it or, you know, listening to the records or whatever. We're in it. Yeah. And that was like validating and really exciting yeah i remember us listening to sarah harmer's record in the car because someone had a copy of it <clears throat> just before it but she was in nashville we met her in nashville that's right. she was randomly yeah, yeah. playing a show and yeah, yeah. came to see royal city at the spring water in nashville yeah those were good times anyway see now it's bright and happy good memories yeah and and you know there's lots of good stuff going on in my life right now yeah you got a couple of kids it's exciting times <laughs> where can people get more information about this uh, ccla event ccla.org mm -hmm. there's a Facebook page and the event is May 3rd this Saturday and you're excited I am you're organizing but not playing yeah that's right that's good it, <laughs> it's good that I'm not playing yeah it's good you can relax and enjoy the show oh well I won't be relaxed I won't be oh you'll be totally relaxed yeah yeah <laughs> are we okay of course we're okay we're okay <laughs> did you enjoy this yeah, it was pretty fun okay well I think uh, uh, for more for more information about the uh, uh uh, Canadian Artists for Civil Liberties and the Canadian Civil Liberties Association. As we say, go to ccla.org. And then, uh, Nathan, what's coming up with uh, you musically? Uh, you got uh, for you musically, I should uh, say. Just drumming for Bry throughout the summer. Bry Webb? Yeah. And, and working on a new Minotaur's record. Okay. So more info about those things, minotaursband.com and whatever Bry. I can think it's Bry Webb something. 
I can't remember. I don't know. I think it's Harbor Coat something. Yeah, it was Harbor Coat something. Yeah. yeah, just go Google Brightwood. Yeah, he's not hard to find. We're going to play a song from the last Minotaur's album. What, what's the album called? Uh, New Believers. What song are we going to hear? Make Some Noise. Because that's what you think people should do? Yeah, I do. <laughs> Let's play it. Nathan, thank you for being on the show. Thanks, Vish. Thanks again for checking out Creative Control with Vish Khanna. 
You can email me about the show at creativecontrol933 at gmail.com. That's creative with a K, control with a K, 933 at gmail.com. You can also follow our Twitter at vishcreative, V-I-S-H-K-R-E-A-T-I-V-E. And you can also like our Facebook page. A version of this show airs on CFRU in Guelph every Wednesday at noon Eastern. And you can listen to that online at CFRU.ca or if you're in the KW region at 93.3 FM in Guelph. You can also sign up for the weekly mailing list for the podcast and the, and the show at vishkana.com and subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. I believe that is everything I wanted to tell you. Thank you once again. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.